Hello, everyone. Hope you guys are staying warm through these crazy, cold times. Um, I just want to get into today's message right away. Um, if you've been with our church, and if you've been with us recently, you might have heard this well-known saying um, a couple of times from the pulpit. And the saying goes like this. As the world gets darker and darker, the church is called to shine brighter and brighter. Uh, you've probably heard it many times. Um, you've probably heard it many times, especially the way we closed out last year. We ended with a an end time series, a series sermon series on the end times. And you probably heard time and time uh, time uh, from myself and Pastor Susie that as the world once again, the, as the world becomes darker and darker. The church is called to shine brighter and brighter. The church is called to arise and shine. Arise and shine. We are called to, as Jesus says, we're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be a light, um, like a city set on a hill. And we're not called to be under a bowl. And when it comes to this statement, um, there are some questions that I've been pondering uh, I've been reflecting on what's going on in the world as Pastor Susie led us in some prayer. I've been doing some introspection, uh, closing out 2020 and just reflecting. Some questions that come to mind I'd like to share with you is, how does the church continue to be salt and light? How does the church continue to be salt and light amidst increasing darkness? Um increasing bad news if you continue to follow the news headlines bad news after bad news after bad news how does the church continue to be salt and light i preached a sermon last year uh what it means to be salt and light and i touched upon how what it means to be salt it means to be undefiled it's called it's it means for the church to stay pure stay uncontaminated because i shared how salt back in the day um, lost its purity because it was contaminated with other minerals that look like salt. And so how does the church remain pure? How does the church um, continue to shine, meaning being influential in the world? Um, other questions that I've been thinking about is, what does it mean for the church to shine brighter and brighter? What does it mean when Scripture says that the world is going to get darker and darker. Now, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to jot down these scriptures that I'm about to share. Um, and, it, and scripture says, we believe that scripture says that as we get closer and closer to the end times and Christ's return, that the world is indeed going to get darker and darker. These scriptures, I'm going to share three. It's Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Matthew 24. Once again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 24. These scripture says that lawlessness will increase. It says that nation will rise up against nation. People group will rise up against people group. The love of many will grow cold. The love for God, the love for uh, the love for uh, Christ, the love of many will grow cold. 
there will be an increase of people where there are lovers of themselves. There's going to be an elevation of the worship of man and idolatry. An increase in global disasters and global shakings. This is what we believe scripture says. The world gets darker and darker. And amidst all this, what does it mean for the church to shine? And today, we kind of want to touch on that. Well, we believe that the church, when, when I say the church is called to shine brighter and brighter, what does that exactly mean? We hear it all the time. We hear it from this pulpit. For the church to shine brighter and brighter, it means this. It means a greater maturity and a greater readiness and preparation for these dark times. Once again, to shine brighter and brighter means that the church increases in maturity and readiness to handle these dark times that are coming. And even the dark times that we're in right now. There are many areas of maturity. There's not just one. There are many areas of maturity. And but something that I've been reflecting on lately that I want to preach about today is maturity in this area of humility. Humility. Everyone say humility from where you are. All right. Growing in humility the reason why it's been on my heart is because when I think about what Scripture says about when things get darker and darker, I, I, I mentioned how people, there will be an increase where people will be lovers of themselves. There's, there's going to be an increase in people that are boastful, people that are proud. We're going to see time and time and again a repeat of Genesis 11, a modern-day Tower of Babel where people are making a name for themselves Narcissism is going to be on the increase. And knowing that about what Scripture says, I believe that there needs to be an urgency for all of us, for the church especially, to grow in humility. In order to shine brightly, we need to grow in humility. And we've probably heard so many sermons on humility, but I believe that there actually needs to be so much more. So many more. As I spent some time reflecting on 2020, um, a few questions that came to mind um, as I examined my heart personally, as I reflected on 2020, I asked myself this question. How have I matured for this past year, for last year? How have I grown in Christ. And specifically, the question that came to mind is, how have I grown in humility? Have I grown at all at humility? I've heard it said that the older you get, the more you begin to be set in your ways. Uh, and in your teens and in your 20s is when you're more like a wet cement. Your, your, your perspective of life and... Um, you know, your ideologies, how you view life, your worldview is being shaped in your teens and your 20s. And I heard that the older you get, that wet, that wet concrete begins to harden and, and it, you, you begin to be set in your ways. And we, we become less malleable and we begin to kind of solidify. 
And you know, I'm convinced that humility will be imperative uh, for the church as we move forward, especially if we're willing to admit, have we been just set in our own ways, like gripping so tight with the way that we've grown up? And we need to examine that once again, humbly. So when you think of humility, we turn to a well-known passage, and we're going to turn there once again today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, please have it open with me, because today we're going to be going through it verse by verse together. Okay, let me read it for us. Apostle Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Here we see, if you can look to verse 1. Verse 1 says this, If there if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, those are a lot of if statements, aren't there? If you have experienced any of these things, Paul is saying this, complete my joy. Paul, who is in prison writing this, being persecuted and suffering in that state, he's saying, complete my joy, church, by being of the same mind. Now, when Paul writes this, all these if statements, he's actually, all these statements are actually uh, rhetorical statements. They're rhetorical statements. As in, obviously, the church of Philippi, obviously, they have experienced all that. Obviously, they have partook and received all that he had listed. It's rhetorical. Paul is saying, why is he saying these rhetorical statements? 
Paul is saying all these things because he is reminding them that the source and motive for living out what he's about to say next, the source and motive of all these things, this is all a response of experiencing the gospel. He's saying this, don't just do what I'm telling you to do because you should do it. Because you're a Christian, you should be like this. Don't just do it because I'm telling you. But because of the impact that Christ has had in your life, because of that, because of Christ and the gospel, let's live accordingly. It's only natural to live this way. If you have experienced encouragement in Christ, if you have experienced comfort from His love, if you have participated in His Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, which I believe that this church has experienced, which you have experienced, we have stories of how we have encountered God in these ways. If you have experienced this radical grace time and time and again, then our life should look like this, what he's about to go into right now. Paul is saying, if you've experienced these things, join with me, having the same mind. Paul is not saying necessarily, be like me, have my mind. Paul is saying this, my mind, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be conformed to Christ's mind. So what Paul is saying, join me in union with Christ and Christ-likeness. So what is verse 1 and 2 saying? Verse 1 and 2, this is Paul's main exhortation to the church. He's saying this, If the gospel has impacted your life, join with me to live accordingly. Say that one more time. Verse 1 and 2 is saying this, If the gospel, if you've experienced the gospel, and the gospel has, has impacted your life, join with me in living accordingly. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? It says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So verse 3 and 4 is what this looks like. What it looks like to have the mind of Christ. A gospel-impacted life looks like what? It looks like selflessness and humility. If our lives are impacted by the gospel, and they are continually being impacted by the gospel, it looks like selflessness. It looks like humility. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. You see, the natural bent of human beings, is that we are selfish. That's the first thing that we should all admit. We are selfish. We are battling within. We have a sinful nature. We are not a finished product. We are a work in progress. Our default sin nature is selfishness. We live in a world of promotion. We live in a world where we want to make our name great. We live in a world that even religiously 
we have a tendency to want to use God for our own progress. We live in a world where it's all about building up our reputation. Our society and the world we live in perpetuates this. The society and the world we live in aids in fanning that flame of selfishness. Because even the Bible says, as I said earlier, people will be lovers of themselves. And that's going to increase. What does it mean, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? Conceit is thinking too highly of ourselves. Too highly of oneself. It's a high preoccupation with oneself. It's a mind constantly confident in self-ability. A.K.A. narcissism. Narcissism. But here Paul exhorts, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let's define real quick. Let's define humility. And I, I'll, I'll just define it like this. Humility is a modest view of one's own importance. Not a low view of one's own importance. But a modest view of one's own importance. It is the lowliness of human pride. There's a popular definition um, that I actually think there's no better definition of humility than this. And you've probably heard it before. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, as in stepping out of the truth of who Christ calls us to be as sons and daughters of the living God. It's not throwing away our God-given dignity. It's not thinking less of ourselves, but it is thinking of ourselves less because we're thinking about God and we're thinking about others. This is to say that humility is where we don't deflate ourselves, but we also don't inflate ourselves. Humility. There's a lot I can say about humility. Humility causes us, and this is what I feel that we need, the church needs, the world needs more than ever. And I, I, I know that you can probably agree with me on this. Humility causes us to be unoffendable and teachable. If we're growing in humility, we won't have an I-know-it-all attitude. If we're growing in humility, there's space in our minds that can say, actually, I could be wrong. Actually, I could be wrong. Humility is an antidote to offense. And it positions us to love well. Positions us to love well. Where there is humility, there is no room for elitism. There is no room for racism. There is no room for classism. There is no room for division where humility reigns. Can you imagine a world and can you imagine a society where humility reigns? Where humility is embraced and practiced? What would our world look like? 
Something that I've been learning a lot as I get older and older is uh, I've been realizing, this may sound funny, but I've been realizing this fundamental truth that actually aligns with Christian doctrine. And this fundamental truth is this. It's not going to feel good. It didn't feel good when I found out. Fundamental truth is this. We are not that great. I am not that great. <laughs> Susie's laughing because she's like, you're just finding that out right now? <laughs> I got this revelation that I am actually not that great. Like I said, we are a work in progress. We don't know everything. We don't cover all bases and we don't know all perspectives. We are limited. We are sinful. You see, our knowledge, as we increase in age, we grow in knowledge. We're always learning, right? Our increase in knowledge should not, as the Bible says, our increase in knowledge should not puff us up. Unless we fall into a subtle self-righteousness. When we elevate our experience, when we elevate our knowledge, we have to be careful. When we're not humble, we can fall into a subtle self-righteousness. And begin to, we begin to view others and have conversations where we don't even know it, but we begin to be condescending toward those around us. I remember when I was uh, a young, you know, recent, recent, uh, recent uh, grad student, I, um, recent uh, college graduate, I went to Africa as a missionary for about two years. And I went and I came back and you know what? I realized that and I didn't notice immediately, but as time passed, I realized that I was lacking in humility in such a way that my growth in knowledge of the missions world, of being a missionary, my growth in experience, I let it shape my identity. I let it shape my identity to the point where I would look down on people. That's what sin nature does to us. These positive experiences, which are a blessing, these, the knowledge that we grow in, which is a blessing, you can see this as, as crowns, as the Bible calls it, as crowns. You see, if I had humility, I would lay down my crowns. I would not let these things define me. I would let Christ define me. And I became so self-righteous. And when we walk that path, the Lord will lead us in a direction that is not so comfortable to reveal that. Brothers and sisters, church, are we growing in tenderness? Do we have an unoffendable heart? Are we defensive? Do you find yourself to be defensive? Do we have a teachable and understanding heart? Do we acknowledge other people's opinions? If we disagree, do we disagree respectfully and lovingly without demoting the dignity of others? 
Are we growing in humility? Do we have that thought where it's like, oh, I could see where you're coming from. I never thought of it like that. Are we humble? Let's just honestly ask ourselves, are we humble in correction? Or are we defensive? Are we surprised by our sinfulness? Are we humble in receiving teaching? When we receive teaching, is it like, I already know that? Or is it like, I think I could learn something more? Are we humble in listening? Do we let things simmer? Are we quick to react when we hear something that doesn't align with our worldview? Are we humble in the way we listen? And I believe, especially in these times, 2020 has taught me that, Susie's going to laugh again, that I am not humble. 2020 has taught me and the Holy Spirit has reminded me time and time and again that I am on a dangerous path, that my light is going to be hid under a bowl. If I'm not growing in humility, if my conversations are not seasoned with salt, if the way I'm listening is not with a humble attitude. Verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul, so is, let me just remind us. If verse 1 and verse 2 was the exhortation, where Paul says, live according to the gospel. And verse 3 and 4 was what that looks like. Be selfless and humble. Verse 5 through 8 is the most important. Verse 5 through 8 is a source of motivation. And the source of empowerment to actually live humbly. Jesus and the gospel is not only the model to imitate humility, but it is also, Jesus is also the source of empowerment and the source of motivation. We can try our best to be humble with our knowledge of humility, but it is only because of what Christ has done for us and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us that we can actually grow in humility. This mindset of humility, it cannot be attained with our own carnal flesh. Because our carnal flesh is in opposition to humility. But Paul encourages us in this great hope that we have access and it is ours. This mind is ours in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Not only is Jesus a moral example but what He has done allows us to experience and taste humility that this world cannot offer. This humility comes from Christ alone. It is in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ that we are becoming more and more like Christ. I want to say that one more time. It is in Christ and through Christ, and because of Christ, that we can become more like Christ. That's it. 
He is the means to humility. Verse 6 through 8, Paul fleshes this out. No pun intended. He fleshes this out. He says, Yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He became flesh by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says here, Paul reminds us that Jesus, in the form of God, He's fully human, fully divine. He left the glories of heaven and He became a man. He became one of us. He became a human being. He left the glories of heaven and came into this dark and sin-plagued world. And it says here, He emptied Himself. And I want to make this clear. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He is still God. When he, became, when he became incarnate. Still God. He walked in power. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his rights and privileges. He emptied himself of his rights and privileges. He lived a life of demotion. What does it mean to live a life where we empty ourselves? The word for this, the Greek word for this, where you empty yourself and Christ became incarnate, that word is called kenosis. Kenosis. It's this life of demotion. So contrary to this world. So contrary to what the people thought how they thought Jesus was going to come to rule and reign in a, in a way not of demotion but of exaltation right away but kenosis living is a life of demotion or he left the glories of heaven he resided in the womb of man born in a barn in a manger grew up in the flesh, resisted the same temptations you and I fight to resist. But lower still, lower still, he gets on his knees with a towel and a basin. He becomes a servant. He becomes a slave, washing people's feet. Can you go any lower than that? Yes, he became Sin. He, he became sin who knew no sin. And he was nailed to the cross. That's how low he went. Kenosis living. He became a servant. You see, being a servant is the active expression of humility. Service is the active expression of humility. How do we know we're growing in the gospel? How do we know we're maturing in humility? Service. As we try to form New Year's resolutions and think about 2021, my question I want to present is, do you find yourself 
kenosis living? Do you find yourself serving? Serving others? Thinking others more than yourself? Deeper question, is your service fueled and compelled by the love of Christ? Is it the gospel that is propelling and fueling our passion to serve? He became obedient to death on a cross, church. Keller says, Tim Keller, he says, Jesus sacrificed his freedom so we could be accepted as we are. And yet, that sacrificial love enabled us to grow and change. We will try to love in the same way. In the same way. In verse 9 through 11, Paul speaks of the end result of all this. The end all be all is the exaltation of Christ. Therefore, God has exalted Him. The Father has exalted the Son and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a world that is all about promotion and progress and the exaltation of the name of man, Christ displays demotion, emptying himself. He's not living for the exaltation that this world, this rat race that this world is going after. That exaltation will come. That exaltation as he sits at the right hand of the Father right now, When he comes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He will be exalted to the fullest degree. But the good news, so much grace, is that church, we're not called to look for exaltation here on this earth. The good news is that we will rule and reign with him when Jesus returns. Jesus invites us to an eternal perspective. Let us live a life of kenosis, lower and lower and lower. Selfless, selfless, selfless. And that undeserved grace yet again, I don't know why God wants it like this, but sounds weird to say, but we will be exalted with Him. We will be ruled and reigned. We won't be worshipped. But He will lift us up for those who are humble. To summarize, the greater the pursuit, and if there's anything I want us to get is a summary, the greater the pursuit and revelation of Christ, the greater the humility. The greater the humility, the greater the unity. The greater the unity, the greater the maturity of the church. That's where the church shines. That's one way that the church shines at this, as this world gets darker and darker. We need to pursue and we need to understand 
that individually and corporately, without humility, we will not shine. Without humility, Christ-like, Christ-empowered humility, gospel-centered humility, we will not shine. There are 59 verses in the New Testament, one another verses, as we call them, one another verses. Andy Stanley, he said this, the primary activity of the church was one anothering one another. I like that. The primary activity of the church is to one another one another. Right? Let me just read a couple. These are the commandments of Jesus. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among, among one another. Be at the same mind. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before beginning the Eucharist. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Be subject to one another. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Why am I sharing this? Growing in humility requires us to one another one another. Growing in humility requires us to obey these commandments to one another, one another. We must have humility to grow in these ways. I challenged, uh, I asked myself this question. This question came to my eyes as I was reflecting on 2020. When I was asking myself, have I grown in humility at all? And it's an interesting question. It's a hard question to answer. I asked myself, what value do, this question came to me, JP, what value do you bring to people? It's a weird question, I know. What value doing do you bring to people? And I want to ask you guys the same question as well. When you reflect on 2020, what value have you brought to so-and-so? to your significant other, to people you work with, to those you come across with everybody, to people in our church. What value do you bring to people? Let's throw away all, all the arrogance and let's throw away all the false humility and answer. In another way, let's just fill in this blank. I brought value to this person's life in 2020 because blank. Like, think about that. I brought value. Like, like if Susie were to answer that question, if Susie were to say, I brought value to JP's life in 2020 because blank, she could answer, she's probably bought me like more than 20 meals in 2020. That's valuable. You know what I'm saying? I felt, I felt loved, you know? <laughs> Thank you. The reason why this question is important is 
It leads to this question. In what practical ways have I loved and served people on purpose? Intentionally. In what ways have I loved people on purpose? It could be as small as buying them a meal or doing them a service or any of the five love languages. Because we should ask ourselves this question because it's not about what has what has that person done for me? What has Yoon done for me? What has Gina done for me in 2020? The question we should ask ourselves, this kenosis living mindset question we should ask ourselves, what have I done for her? What have I done for Yoon? Can I list three things? It's not about asking the question, what has even the church done for me? What have I done for the church? What have I done to serve the church? What have I done to build the body of Christ? These challenging questions is what I want to leave you you with. 